Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of the e-commerce evolution podcast. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And today I've got a treat for you. I have an e-commerce influencer, a consultant, a guy who's just crushing it on LinkedIn and beyond. Uh, he knows the ins and outs of Shopify, Amazon, all the marketplaces, everything, anything and everything happening that's big in e-commerce. This guy knows it. So I've got Rick Watson on the, the podcast today. He's the CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting. And so Rick, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? And, and thanks for coming on. Um, I'm doing great, Brett. Thanks for reaching out to me and happy to be on the pod. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, I've been, uh, and I've mentioned this on a few podcasts, I'm trying to dial in my social media game, right? So I'm posting on Twitter, which I'm partially liking and just honestly partially not, but I'm enjoying LinkedIn a lot. So I'm posting on LinkedIn. I see this cat named Rick Watson. He's dropping knowledge bombs. And I'm like, I got I to gotta check this guy out. So I look at your profile. You're like 45,000 followers on LinkedIn. So I'm like, all right, I got I to gotta get to know this guy. So reached out and uh, and here we are. So uh, just as a quick aside, and we'll get into e-commerce news and things going on with Amazon and Shopify, and we'll we'll uh, dive into some juicy nuggets there. But um, talk about social media. How, how did you you know why did you get started on LinkedIn? And and do you think that is that worthwhile for someone to consider investing in their LinkedIn game? Yeah, I mean, look, it all depends on what your goal is. For me, LinkedIn is marketing. You know, I started my own consulting firm about four years ago, and I know like this is not going to be an interesting business um, if I can't find my own deals. And so it just started with how can I how can I help people? And so I yeah. naturally have always enjoyed writing and speaking, and so I think there is a few different sides of it. One is how do I talk about the the companies that people care about, which is you know the big the big two ecosystems in e-commerce by far are Shopify and Amazon. So that's totally. why you'll see me talk about Shopify and Amazon a lot. Um, and then if I can sprinkle in there information, like while I'm talking about those topics, other things to help people that gives people an idea of the type of work that I do, but not in a salesy way. I was never good at really selling myself per se. And, and what I figured out over the years, especially in social media, no one wants you to sell to them exactly. on social media. So don't, so don't do it. So I think you have to remember why you're there. And right. everyone has a goal. If your goal is to find new partners, it could be to find new customers. It could be, you know, but a lot of that social media, the way I think about it, it's the top of your funnel. It's how you meet new people. And if those people trust you, then maybe one day they'll do business with you. But not yep. before. Love it. But not before, right? It, it, 100%. No like and trust. You build that on social media for sure. So how long did it take Rick Watson to go from whatever you had in the beginning to <laughs> now almost 45,000 yeah. followers? So, so I've, been, I've been in LinkedIn since the beginning, 2004 or five. I, I think everyone started on LinkedIn as their online yeah. resume, right? But I didn't, totally. until I used, until I started my business, I never got serious about it. So when I founded my business in 2019, I had about 2,500 con contacts. And so in the last, awesome. four, the last four years, I've maxed out. I, I've learned two things. Number one is like the, the max number of connections you can have on LinkedIn is 30,000. I did not know that when I started. Interesting. You cannot, so you cannot you connect. Followers so I had to go to the whole follower model, which luckily introduced, you know, LinkedIn introduced this whole creator mode. Uh, so you, your, your profile becomes something that someone can follow rather than connect. 
Uh, actually, I had to delete connections to meet to. <laughs> so um, the, it, it took me a while to figure out that, you know, after a couple of months, after I started my business, I, I basically post on LinkedIn every weekday morning. That's that's nice. kind of my routine. I do it before I, I start. And um, that's that's really the foundation of all my content marketing, period. All my content basically starts on LinkedIn. Nice. And then you're taking pieces of that content and sharing elsewhere potentially or? Yeah. So I might be like, if, if I post about Shopify over a month period, maybe three or four of those posts might turn into a bigger blog post that will be then used for SEO. Or yep. each of those stories might be used in my podcast in a little bit different way. Yeah. And so um, I'm actually starting to get into, looking to start to get into video. So some of these more popular posts might turn into video. Like, so it's, all these things are starting to reinforce each other as I kind of like, okay, I got LinkedIn, I have okay. And the podcast is going. Like, what else can I use this content for is what I think is interesting. Leveraging that content. Love it. Love it. Well, let's dive into some news. I uh, appreciate that. That side note, and for anybody wanting to build their social media following, some free tips for you. So let's talk Shopify. Now, uh, fairly recently, depending on when someone le- uh, listens to this, I think it was actually this morning or, or whatever as we're recording, but Shopify just announced a price increase. They bumped the price on basic and advanced and Sounds like it was a pretty decent hike, right? 30% or something. So talk about that. Why did Shopify do it? It's probably obvious to most people, but why did they do it? And is this good, bad, or just it just is? Yeah, I, I think it kind of is. I mean, look, across the board, everyone's raising their prices. Totally. You know, the cost of employees is higher. The, you know, the cost of services is higher. And so that even, you know, that, that applies to Shopify. Shopify hasn't done a price increase. And I, to be honest, since I've been following Shopify the past five or six years, at least, wow. I can't think of when they've done a price increase. Um, and I think, you know, the COO um, mentioned that, you know, something like 10 or, 10 or 12 years. So it's almost like a mistake, I think, that they haven't <laughs> raised prices till yeah. now. And so it was kind of inevitable when I saw their Q3 earnings and they kind of went from profitable to slightly, not terribly unprofitable, but like negative 10% net margin. I'm like, these guys are going to increase their price real soon here. (laughs) Uh, Because otherwise, what do you have to do? You have to lay, like, they're a software company for all their expenses, people. So they don't want to lay off people. So they're going to increase their prices and then they might do some layoffs and they end up doing both. Yeah, I'm frankly kind of indifferent for it because I thought it was overdue. I... Before I posted my article this morning, I uh, I did some searching on Twitter just to get a sense for what people were thinking. There's a lot of complaints. No one likes no one likes <laughs> to hear right. about a you know, no one likes to hear about a price increase. But in a week, you will not hear one peep. I guarantee it, it'll be dead. It'll be, it will dead. be like, totally man, dead. This, this really sucks. But they're reaching for their wallet to, to yeah. Like where where, just, where else are, gonna, are they going to spend six months to pay a new agency to replatform? No. No, to spend no, they're going to spend the extra ten dollars a month. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So likely long overdue. So interesting news there. Hopefully, uh, hopefully Shopify can get profitable because hey, we all need Shopify, right? Even even the ecosystem at large, Shopify is good for it. So let's let's move on to another topic, and this one's super interesting to me, and it's one that, that admittedly I understand at a surface level, but not deeper. And so I'm excited to chat with you about it. Let's explain what headless is for people. 
Wow. And then Shopify's kind of play on that is, is Shopify components. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what is headless? Yeah, headless is an unfortunate term that has <laughs> made its made its way into popular uh, terminology in the e-commerce world. And I I kind of came up as a developer, so I understand a lot of the technology. And I was a software engineer for many years as a, and an architect. So Headless essentially means that there's a separation between how you display content to a user, i.e. the journey a user will go through on the path to purchase, from back office and operations functionality. And traditionally in a software like uh, Shopify, like a Magento, like a Salesforce, historically, all those things were kind of bundled in one software platform. So if you didn't like, if you're like, like the prototypical example is like, if you don't like your Shopify template, you know, it's not like you could design a custom one. This is like early on. You couldn't design a custom one from scratch. You were kind of like, you know, choose one of the hundred templates and that's what you got. Right. Yep. Uh, and headless, I first heard about headless back in the Magento days, something like 2013. And part of it, it was, um, performance of the site, like once you put over a thousand products in Magento, it would start to like collapse. And so people would build completely custom front ends, but use the Magento cart on the back end. And so people talk, what I heard was like people would talk about t- taking the head off of Magento. And by the head, that means the, the UX. Things like the homepage, the category pages, the search engine, the, the PDP, basically everything up until that add to cart button is the head. And so that's that's what people mean by headless. Um, and I think the real look at the end of the day, the goal for headless is flexibility. Yeah. And as flexibility a flexibility and yeah. is, is speed a component too, like speed of the and, and, and user experience uh, speed's a component if the platform is slow by yeah. default, right? It's not a it's not a component if if the site is pretty fast, like Shopify isn't like natively slow unless you load it down with a bunch of stuff. It's not like the fastest yeah. platform on the planet either. But um, and so some people have run Shopify in the headless mode. They, usually that started out with like a, like some kind of CMS on the front end or a custom front end and you can create a, a user experience. And so I think as Shopify, I think Shopify has seen this and then we'll probably talk a little bit about this, but there are a lot of vendors, particularly in the enterprise space, like you may have heard the term like composable commerce or mock microservices, all these kind of terms are sort of in the, in the headless universe per se. And they're just like different flavors of this idea. So you can take all these little microservices and kind of stack them together to build your own flexible custom UX and e-commerce experience. And maybe it's, uh-huh. you know, to use the example we used before, probably this wouldn't be today because this is old, but you know, Magento's the checkout or Shopify's the checkout. We've got these other things that are on the uh, yeah. front end or the head. And, 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 and exactly. And look, look, flexibility is great, but like similar to a Lego set, most people don't want to build an e-commerce platform by be, get, being given a set of Legos. The reason that Shopify is such an amazing company is that it works pretty well for most things people need. Totally. Right? I think as a result, I think what most people who hear about headless are like, oh, it's, it must always be better because it's yeah. new. <laughs> and I think that's not true at all, actually. 
I think there's a segment of scenarios where the out-of-the-box cloud platforms are not flex are not flexible enough, like multinational companies, people with multiple ERP systems with like many different fulfillment centers, many different brands. No, I, I had a customer ask me, like, oh, could Shopify support a million SKUs? You know, and I even had the Shopify sales rep for it. Nope. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> not a chance. So you probably need a little bit more uh, uh, like a different platform. Yeah, then, yeah, makes sense. So then, the box. then what? Yeah, but but it totally makes sense. Like Shopify out of the box works for most people. We got this, you know, the the headless uh, component or headless commerce, which which is all sexy and it's all the rage and stuff. But most people probably don't need it. Um, so then, what what is Shopify components and and how viable is it? Where do you think it fits into this? Uh, yeah, scenario? so what I think is Shopify components. If you think about like where Shopify started from. Let's, let's use a contrast. Shopify is really for smaller brands that kind of grew up. And that's that's really the whole Shopify business. Now, of course, there are many multi-hundred million dollar brands that have been in e-commerce for years and years. And their, um, their technical architectures are usually a disaster and very complicated. You know, they have like 15 ERP systems. They have four brands. They're all on different platforms. They have a PIM like a product, a product catalog over here. They have an order management system, maybe multiple of them, different warehouse systems all over the place. There's no way you could sort of plug Shopify in as the hub to all those things. The idea of composable commerce per se, or what Shopify is calling component components, is how can we break apart what's good about Shopify? Let's say the checkout, maybe some of the hosting infrastructure that was designed for commerce and fit them into this complex enterprise world. Like, can we provide value to this type of brand? And the jury is out because it's a new idea. And this is a new direction for Shopify. But I think that's the vision. Is like, how can we take the best of what what built Shopify into this great all-in-one solution, break it apart, and now we have this Componentized solution that runs on great infrastructure. I mean, no one, you know, Shopify is not perfect, but no one really worries about like Shopify going down day to day. Right, right, right. So they know they know how to host software, um, and they have a great checkout. To me, those two things, like the great hosting and great checkout, that's to me like, especially early on, what Shopify components is going to be most about. Um, and then they're saying other things are components. I'm not really buying it right now. They're like they they threw like fulfillment in the box. Like fulfillment's not a component. I mean, come on. Everyone needs a three PL. It's a service. Like right. don't call it a component. I mean, you're just confusing yeah. what it is. But um, anyway, that's that's kind of the. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you do you know anybody using Shopify components and is it getting some traction or, or it's still well? Still new? It, it's well, they announced it like a month ago. So the answer is no. I read the original press release carefully, and Shopify is very slick with its marketing. And so they have these components that they have, quote unquote, components that they've built over the past few years before they came up with this new name components. So hydrogen, oxygen, you know, the integrations with these new CMS systems. And when they release components, they said, hey, guys, you know those things we did in the last three years? Those are components. And so it, as a result, everyone's using, so it's, 
it almost depends on how you define what a component is. That's a good way is. to get adoption for your new product. Just rename your old product to a new one, and that's like instant adoption. Yeah, okay. Shopify's a that's master at this. <laughs> that is smooth. That is smooth for sure. Okay, cool. So good stuff there. Uh, so you got some Shopify news. That's fun. Let's pivot a little bit and let's talk. Let's talk Amazon because I know you are deep in the Amazon world, and uh, and so let's unpack this a little bit. But Amazon has made some recent changes to FBA. Mm-hmm. So talk about that. What are some of those significant changes and why do they matter? Yeah. So, I mean, FBA is obviously a huge part of the third-party seller universe on Amazon. It's essentially Amazon's fulfillment system that they introduced, you know, 15 plus years ago now. Um, it's had some growth challenges in the past few years where they've struggled with capacity constraints, um, mostly brought about by the pandemic. There's more sellers than space. And so they like doubled their fulfillment capacity, you know, in the past two years. And one of the things that I think what they're trying to do now is they're basically trying to prevent the next storage crisis in advance. So Amazon is smart people. They try to think ahead of like what's going to going on. And so they introduced this new feature uh, in the last month called, um, I don't think they've rolled it out technically yet. It's called um, FBA capacity management. And basically what it means is every seller, even if they're using FBA today, they get a certain amount of storage allocated. Like, okay, you're a seller, you get you can get this much storage. And if you want to get more, tough. This is how much that each brand gets. And so what they found is like, okay, we have this storage problem and we have sellers that want more space and we have sellers that aren't using their space properly. So what they came up with is like a way to solve all these problems at once, which is Brands that are doing well, you can bid for more storage. And Amazon, we have a, we can grant you that request. So like, okay, we think that you want to double your storage. Great. Tell me about the inventory you're going to put in this. It's like, okay, this inventory is not selling. Uh, no, request denied. Oh, if this inventory has really good sell-through by and it's measured by a metric called IPI or inventory performance index, essentially, if your sell-through is good in the in 30, 60 days, say, then you have a much higher likelihood of not only getting access to new storage if you ask for it. And second is you actually aren't going to pay extra for that storage if you sell through that inventory. So it's almost like a carrot um, of putting good inventory in FBA and taking out bad inventory and penalizing people who by giving them less space if their inventory doesn't sell well. <laughs> Which is really smart on Amazon's part, right? How do they maximize, even though they doubled their warehouse space, and there are, I think, something like 1,200 fulfillment centers in the U.S. or whatever, you probably, you probably know better than I do. But, uh, but yeah, still, you got to maximize that space. So what do you do? You incentivize the products they're selling, and you make it really hard for people to send more products in that are not selling. Yeah, that's that's uh, very very smart. Why Amazon is a leader for sure. So if <laughs> so, if your IPI is good, you may get that extra space and not have to pay any extra fees. If it's maybe somewhere in the middle, maybe they'll give you extra space, but but charge you a premium for it. Hundred percent, exactly. Yeah. So like if almost like your if if your IPI is good for the extra storage, and you get back what would have been your fees as not cash but credits. Amazon is like way smarter than the rest of us, right? So like. They're not giving you like dollars back. They're giving you like, oh, if you want to get more, it won't give you future credits. So, you know, they're paying back gift certificates basically 
to, right. to future FBA storage, which is yeah. again which another is really evil, hilarious, like another evil genius idea that they came up with this at the same time. Totally, it's incentivizing <laughs> merchants to do what's in the best interest of Amazon and in the best interest of Amazon's customers. So that that's that's good. And then yeah, the reward is gift certificates, basically, or <laughs> right. future credits on stuff you know, we're going to that you can only you buy know. from them. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Uh, that is super interesting. Okay. So, uh, yeah, but that, that's, a, you know, we, we deal with this a lot. So our agency, obviously we've got a, a big Amazon department and we help with the, the organic side and the paid side, but we do run into this sometimes with, with clients where they're limited on inventory and then you can't really hit the gas pedal too hard on some of your growth strategies because then your sell through is too high. Right. So then, then it's like this game of, Let's consistently build that that IPI so that that increases your capacity and and uh, so it's a bit of a bit of a process for sure. Yeah, and so I think long term, look, IPI has always been pretty important to Amazon, but I think you can see how it becomes more important with as space becomes a, an issue. Yeah, yeah, space becomes premium. Cool. So, so we got we got that. Um, as a as a new rollout to FBI, uh, FBA, uh, what else is new on the FBA side? Um, that's, I mean, you know, it depends on if you want to go for like buy with Prime. That's probably the next big uh, yeah, thing, totally just about right? Um, and, and and first of all, explain this because Amazon uh, and really all the tech companies are are notorious for this. Like like Google names something, then renames it three times, and and you know that's that's I know I know Shopify maybe similar, but. But Amazon. So there's a few things that are named similarly, but what is buy with Prime? Yeah, buy with Prime is essentially a way for let's describe it from the consumer point of view first. A Prime shopper can go to a non-Amazon website and get a Prime-like experience, meaning yep. they can be guaranteed that the, they can use their Amazon account, their stored information, and get their item in with the prime promise within two days and have, and it be part of the A to Z guarantee, which means you get free, no questions asked returns and everything like the whole, the whole prime promise essentially. So that's the consumer promise from a merchant side. It means that if you're a merchant with a direct consumer website, it's, it's basically like uh, FBA, Amazon's fulfillment plus Amazon pay had a baby. And that is, that's what buy with prime is. And so a lot of people, I mean, a fair number of merchants already had Amazon Pay on their website. And this Prime becomes basically a new button on the, on the product detail page, um, you know, labeled simply buy with Prime. And when you click it, um, if you have that inventory in an Amazon facility, uh, either MCF, which is kind of the white, white box Amazon, or FBA, which is, you know, all your stuff for your... 3P business, which is in an Amazon box, uh, you can actually do either. Um, you then click off to the normal Amazon Pay flow, which looks like PayPal or any other third-party payment flow. You go off to a page, you select your shipping method, and then you go back to the website. Uh, and then Amazon will share your contact information back with the brand. And so the brand gets something from it. They get to market themselves to prime shoppers. And they get to sort of co-own this shopper's data. Uh, and then Amazon gets something by them because obviously they're interacting with Amazon and 
for Amazon, everything is about Prime. Like, so why does Amazon do Lord of the Rings? Like, the answer is they want more Prime members, right? Totally. So yeah. everything, yeah. everything about any, anywhere the Prime brand can be can ensure that Prime members get more value wherever they go. Yeah, it's the, you know, Prime is the ultimate accelerator for that, that growth flywheel, right? Once someone becomes a Prime member, your, your consumption on Amazon goes up dramatically. And so Amazon knows that and they want to incentivize that. And this is really interesting because, you know, one, one of the arguments we hear, some of the things that, one of the things I hear a lot is, hey, um, for those that don't want, or think you shouldn't sell on Amazon, hey, if you grow your business on Amazon, it, it's no longer your customer, it's Amazon's customer. And, and that's partially true from a, from a data standpoint, right? Amazon owns the data. Um, you do get to see some of that. Uh, but ultimately, in my mind, that's not a reason to not be on Amazon, right? That's kind of like saying, hey, if you sell a product, don't get on the shelves of Walmart because that's a Walmart customer. Now you're like, right. that's the way retail's always worked, right? It's distribution. Right. And, and there are, if you're a great brand, you want right. people to discover you on Amazon just like you would on the, the Walmart store shelves. But anyway, this, this is a, a little bit better in that Hey, what 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 is one of the hangups if someone's checking out on your D2C store? Well, do they trust it? Do they trust the delivery? Do they trust the checkout? This gives you that Amazon checkout, and you still get to the data, which is interesting. Um, now, I would love your take on this. I know when this first happened, Shopify said, "Nope, not on Shopify <laughs> against TOS. Can't do buy with Prime on Shopify." Yeah. Have they back? Have they backtracked on that? Are people just doing it anyway? Like, what, what's what's your take on that? Yeah. I look. They technically, I think Shopify warns against it. Okay. They're not preventing it. And it's almost like uh, I think they're taking a little bit of a wait and see attitude. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's smart to be honest with you because I think the average D 2 C brand who is really focused on their brand, probably doesn't want Amazon on their website in the short term. Maybe in the long term, they might change your mind, but in the short term, for sure, they're not. If I think about the average GDC brand, that's just not how they think about the world at all. It's just like a different reference. However, there's millions of Amazon sellers that have a very small D2C presence. And they have no hope of building their own you know, traffic on their own and attracting customers. And so if Amazon can be an accelerant to help them move some of these Amazon shoppers to their website, which it's, look, it's proven to happen. They're multi-billion dollar businesses. Anchor is one of the, you know, started on it as an Amazon brand. One of my favorite brands, by the way, in terms of like yeah. chargers for your phone, for your MacBook, whatever. 100%. That is always the brand that I buy. I trust it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's great. But that's so, another example of a good brand that was built on Amazon, right? But now it's a now it's a brand. I'm not I'm not just buying an Amazon charger. I'm buying Anchor, even though I buy it on Amazon. A hundred percent. But you gain that trust on Amazon because you trusted what the reviews. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 you bring up a really good point. I think if someone is highly skilled, and we talk about this a lot. And in fact, I posted about it on Twitter. A couple weeks ago, in the, in the tweet, and gained a lot of traction. I was like, "Hey, if you were to start a brand today, you know, started an e-commerce brand, would you start on Shopify and then and then launch on Amazon? So start on Shopify, build a following, build a community, you know, D to C, and then once you've got a brand following, then launch on on Amazon, or would you start on Amazon first and then try to go D to C after?" And it was really interesting. People were very passionate uh, both ways. It was almost 50-50, A little bit more 
uh, leaning towards building on Shopify. And, and I would kind of agree, like if you've got the skill to build D2C, Right. And you can build up that brand and build up that demand and build up that interest. And when you go to launch on Amazon, you'll you'll take off there and you won't be as priced. You, you know, it won't be a, like a pricing game as much and stuff like that. But I could totally. So, so if you can build that D2C customer, I see there's no reason why you just don't do a Shopify checkout, right? Just, just, just keep right. it all within Shopify. But if you need to maximize your inventory that's inside Amazon or... If you launch, if you live on Amazon mostly, and now you're trying to go D to C, maybe it is a good gateway. Maybe it is a good little transition, little bridge uh, to right. go from strictly Amazon to, to D to C. So Definitely. it is, it is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No. 100%. Any 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 case studies or takeaways or anything you you've heard from people that are using it? I know it's pretty new. Yeah, it's pretty new. I have been doing some secret shopping recently, so I I will be you know hopefully releasing some content about like what's how's it really working. And, you know, Amazon has a number of case studies and if you saw, they announced it in like September or something last year. And then January, they're launching it. Um, like it's invite only. It's actually going to be invite only until like February 1st this year. Um, but apparently they did some studies and they'd be testing that the buy with prime button increase conversion over a similar PDP, 25%. And so interesting. We'll see. We'll see. And, yeah. and, and I'll say, like, in some cases, it's more. In some cases, it's less. Like, your mileage may vary. And so I think that I, that's why they did the beta period is so they can prove, you know, and gather this data so that they can launch it to the to the wider world. I think, to me, the hardest part of adopting Power Prime is FBA, period. You know, like, the average DC brand doesn't have their stuff in FBA have their own right, right exactly so, so yeah. it's not really an option um and look if they have an amazon business that's one thing but then do you now you're like confusing the body so it's yeah it's yeah not, if you it's don't not like your inventory is not there yeah it's not straightforward i would say yeah that that really makes sense so rick watson out there doing some mystery shopping so hey another reason to follow rick on linkedin because you'll get uh, access to those case studies and those those examples when they come out. So, sounds fun. Uh, all right, kind of as we as we wrap up, um, curious your take on Walmart. So you know when you when you when you look at uh, the 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 two biggest players online uh, in terms of marketplaces and and just online retailers, it's Amazon and then Walmart. But it's not really that close, right? If you look at you know market share, and, and I'm going to shoot from the hip a little bit here, but you know, different numbers, but Amazon's like, you know, 40 to 49% of all purchases are on Amazon, somewhere in that neighborhood. Walmart is like six. Right. You know, you look at, at fulfillment centers, like we talked about, you know, Amazon's like 1,200, Walmart's like 200, right? And Walmart's got all the stores and stuff. But but do you, how, what is your view on Walmart as a marketplace and as a viable online competitor to Amazon? And how are you consulting your clients to, to use Walmart? What I would say is for the average brand, um, look, Walmart, you have to pay attention to, I mean, the big three, Amazon, Walmart, and Target, everyone needs to pay attention to, yep. uh, beyond that, it kind of drops off and it becomes much more a niche. Like if you're in home improvement, you have to worry about Home Depot and Lowe's. If you're in beauty, you might need to worry about Ulta and Sephora. So it, it gets very niche after that, but the big three, everyone needs to care about. Um, and so most of the brands that I consult with. Amazon, Walmart, and Target are their customers on retail wholesale side, period. And so as you think about marketplaces, 
those are really Walmart is the only, you know, really the only market marketplace that you can kind of recommend without question. As long as someone is already starting to scale their Amazon business, you're like, should I care about, you know, when you go, there's like, I don't know, 50 marketplaces in the US. Like, which one should I care about? Like, well, probably not 50 of them. You should probably right. like, just make sure your Amazon and Walmart business are optimized first, and then you can start caring. But for most people, they're not, they're never going to get there because there's always like if 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 you have ten dollars to spend, you should probably invest like eight in Amazon, one in one in Walmart, and one across everyone else. You know what I mean? Like exactly, exactly. Or maybe in the beginning, you just invest all ten dollars in in Amazon, hundred percent, and really grow that, and then and then you start looking at other things. Yeah, and for for a lot of our clients, you know, the, we we recommend something similar where let's really focus on the the immediate opportunities on Amazon, and then we'll begin to look at Walmart. And sometimes Walmart is a couple percentage points in Lyft. Yeah. Maybe it's five percent. Maybe it's a little more. But it, it's not going. It's not going to be a game changer. But it is. It is certainly something yeah. to consider. Uh, curious, also your take on on you mentioned Target. So we, we've got kind of an end with with Target Plus for for at least some verticals mm-hmm. uh, through through a couple connections we have, and I have a few clients that are on. Target Plus, that's pretty interesting. We actually got right. some people that are moving some products on on Target Plus. Uh, what, what's your take there? And it sounds like probably a lot of your merchants are on Target Plus as well. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's interesting. Particularly AOV seem to be higher on Target relative to other places, which I think moves the needle for some people. I think Target is just such a quality retailer that that really that relationship is important. Oh, um, quality customer buyer, pretty loyal, like the Target the Target. Fans are still yeah. loyal to Target. A hundred percent. Again, marketplaces smaller than Walmart, so it's like diminishing returns as you go down. So, you know, Walmart and Target are never going to make or break someone's year if, if right. they're the head of marketplace. Period. It just won't, because um, it's always going to be. It's it's certain. It's on the wrong side of the eighty twenty. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even maybe ninety ten, right? And, yeah, I'm sure you see. This yeah, I would say so. I would say probably more like 90-10. Yeah, exactly. But, with your you clients know. as well. So one of them could be a, you know, one of these businesses can be a two hundred million dollar business, and one cannot, right? So yeah, there there is. It, it's a very powerful idea, and this is something I coach my clients on. Where should you spend that next incremental dollar? And your and and almost more important than your dollar is your time. Most people exactly. have a fixed team. They have like three people on their team. And I've walked into clients that were on 10 marketplaces and a $10 million Amazon business. I'm like, this makes no, this doesn't make any sense. Like, yes, yeah, you're yeah. diversified. With all three people on Amazon, forget about the rest for a while. <laughs> yeah. Right. Forever. Like, yes, you're diversified, but you are destroying your own opportunity. So, really good point. Really, really good point. Um, awesome. So, so you talked about clients, and, and I mentioned your business as we kind of launched here. But, but RMW Commerce Consulting. So, so talk about what you do. How, how do you yeah. help people, and and what are the types of brands and companies you're working with? Yeah. So, I've I've worked with a number of different, mostly private equity backed brands over the years, which means basically the ultimate owner is is an investor that has a portfolio of brands and companies that work for them. Some of them I've worked with are like WHP Global, which bought the brand Ann Klein. They own Toys R Us. They own Joseph Abood. And so helping them with digital strategy. And a lot of these brands that private equity buys are, you know, in the, in the e-commerce world, you might call them opportunity buys. 
And because there's something that people love about this brand, but maybe it's been mismanaged. And people under there's name recognition there, but something about the execution is not right. Like the profitability is upside down, or their digital strategy is bad, or they're not in the right up. Like there's something about the business that needs to be improved. And so that's when private equity comes in. And so I I'm usually very much aligned with the new investors and the CEO to help transform these businesses, basically kind of assess where we are, recommend like a punch list of items. These are the top 15 things that I would be doing right now. And here's what your returns are going to be over the next two years, whether it's people process technology across, you know, digital marketing platforms, um, supply chain, merchandising, you name it, insourcing, outsourcing. And it's different for every brand, depending on how much money they're working with, what their time frame is, um, you know, et cetera, how many, how many staff they have. Yeah, totally makes sense. So, so yeah, so people, processes, technology, mapping that out. So you're looking, working on the strategic level. You're maybe helping build out the team or find the right agency or, 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 or find the right partners. And, and so you're guiding these companies, which uh, is awesome. And so you're, you're primarily working with private equity-backed companies or exclusively working with private equity I would say companies? primarily. That's about two-thirds of the business. I also work yes. with um, software and service providers in the e-commerce industry. I've, I've been in the software most of my career, and I've been a software company CEO. So I, a lot of um, e-commerce service providers, a lot of times in supply chain, marketing, payments, have come to me for advice on broadly go-to-market strategy. How do I, you know, e-commerce is a competitive market. And so if you're a supply chain provider or a technology provider or a 3PL or a payments company, you may be like, how do I stand out? What should my strategy be? What, what is the right message for me? Um, and it's usually companies that are between series A and series C, and they're trying to make some kind of change in their business, right? Well, we've grown to this point, but we're kind of hitting diminishing returns and they're bigger players above us. So like, how do we break through to that next level is really, um, kind of how I help them from a go-to-market, um, messaging and approach point of view. It's awesome. It's awesome. So if someone's interested, they're like, Hey, I need to find out more about this, or this sounds like it might be a fit for me. How can they get in touch with you? Yeah. The, the simplest way that has all the information there is my website, rmwcommerce.com. Uh, or, you know, it's also easy. Just hit me on LinkedIn, uh, search for Rick Watson and you'll find me and shoot me a message and I'll, I'll respond. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Rick, this has been a ton of fun, uh, but do follow Rick online. He's a great follow on LinkedIn. You'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot daily, um, but also catch you at events, right? You're speaking at NRF. You're speaking at other yeah. events. I'll be at Shop Talk. I'll be at IRCE. I'll be nice. at the lead. So that'll be fun. Yeah, looking forward awesome. to meet anybody who, who comes around. Awesome. Oh, and also, the I think I mentioned it at the top of the show, but the Rick Watson Weekly, is that is that the name of the podcast? Yeah, the Watson Weekly is a podcast Watson I Week. started about uh, a year and a half ago, and it's it's kind of a different than the normal podcast. 15 minutes every week. It's a digest of e-commerce news and uh, hit subscribe in your Apple podcasts. And uh, we'd love to have you listen. Watson Weekly, get that weekly e-commerce news. I like it. Rick, thank you so much. This was a ton of fun and we'll have to do it again. All right. Thanks a lot, Brett. Thanks, man.
And as always, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we'd love your feedback. So if you've not already done it, uh, leave us that review on iTunes or wherever you consume podcasts. And as I've mentioned, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter. We'd love to connect with you and keep the conversation going on the socials. And with that, until next time, thank you for listening. All right. All right. At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session, or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.